Well, our next reading today from, uh, is uh, from two prime ministers, chapter 16, verse 8. In the year of our Lord, 2013, Kevin Rudd, having deposed Julia Gillard as Prime Minister, was, dispo- was deposed in a general election and Tony Abbott became Prime Minister. Tony Abbott reigned for three years. He followed in the ways of John Howard. In the year of our Lord, 2015, Tony Abbott was deposed by Malcolm Turnbull, who reigned for three years. However, he followed in the ways of John Howard and Tony Abbott, and in the year of our Lord, 2018, Malcolm Turnbull was stabbed in the back and deposed by his party, and Scott Morrison reigned in his place, and things did not get any better. Hang on. I shouldn't be talking about politics in church, should I? But God does. The whole of the Bible is about politics. Genesis 1 through to Revelation. It's politics. The word politics has several meanings. At its broadest, it means the way the polis, the people, are arranged or managed. A narrower meaning is the activities associated with the governance of a country or area. But often it's limited to the debate between political parties. We call that party politics. Perhaps people mean that we shouldn't talk about party politics in church or or in the wider public debates. We shouldn't have Christian leaders speaking uh, to uh, in the media, for example. Just stick to a private view of personal salvation. And in case you're worried, I have no intention of telling you how I think you should vote in the upcoming state election. But again, in the Bible, God does talk about party politics. A common refrain used of kings of Israel, we saw in the first reading, is he followed in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which meant that the king, like many before him, oppressed the poor and engaged in idolatry and other aspects of pagan worship. We might as well call the king who did this and those around them the Jeroboam son of Nebat party. Not quite as good as some of the names in the first election down in the ACT. Uh, The sun-dried tomato party was one of my favourites. Or, the best of all time, the party, 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 party. Uh, Really liked that name. It was a great election. Um, In the time of Jesus, King Herod led the Herodians. Pontius Pilate led the clique that ran Israel for the Romans and the book of Revelation was much about the politics of the Roman Empire. People see it as apocalyptic, but actually it's very, very political. All four Gospels speak of different power groups within the Jews. We hear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Jesus condemned the hypocrisy and hard-heartedness of these groups. Uh, He condemned their morals, their practices, and their policies. In other words, he condemned their politics. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul criticises those who formed parties around Peter, Apollos, and himself, 
and did not have Jesus as their leader, so Paul was talking about politics. But we mustn't talk about party politics in or outside church, must we? Of course we do whenever we preach on the Gospels, but somehow it's okay to talk about politics that happened 2,000 years ago, but not party politics today. Today I want us to consider why Christians think we should not talk about party politics in or outside church and how we can engage with politics well. The subject of God and politics is huge, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail today. Uh, there's a lot of theology that underpins it. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to look at what the Bible says and what we can make out of that. One observation about people who say we should not talk about party politics is that they don't want change. They're happy with the way things are. Don't rock the boat. Don't look for change. Now, if you're familiar with Australian history over the last 70 years, you will know that it is mainly the Labor governments that have brought change. Chifley after the Second World War, Whitlam in the early 70s, the Hawke-Keating government, and of course the Albanese government has been seeking change with the federal ICAC, reform of industrial relations, climate change, international relations, the voice to parliament, and quite a few other things. That's not to say that the LNP governments have not made changes, and some of them good. The gum buyback laws and the GST were necessary changes. But it's not hard to see that the parties of change are primarily Labour and the Greens and perhaps the Teals. And therefore, given that the LNP has been in power for more than, uh, far more often than Labour, about 7 to, 7 to 3 ratio, a policy against talking about party politics is actually a form of support for the LNP. So to speak against talking about politics in church is itself a political act. It is a policy that supports the status quo with all the economic and social priorities that flow out of that. However, there are certain some risks with preaching on politics today. The first and most obvious is that the preacher may be ill-informed and unwise. You run that risk every week. Someone trained in the skill of interpreting the Bible may be hopeless at applying it to the political and social setting. Uh, and there are many examples of that. Also, the conclusions that some preachers draw may not reflect God's wisdom in the Bible. An example of that is when preachers say that a particular problem that arises is God's punishment on particular sins. Uh, this happened when the AIDS virus suffered, uh, surfaced in the 1980s and caused devastation in gay communities. Some preachers said that this was God's punishment on gays. Uh, of course, they had to overlook the spread of AIDS in heterosexual communities, which is where it did the most damage in Africa, or among intravenous drug users. So it was brainless bigotry. But worse, it was heresy. 
For the Bible teaches us that Jesus died once for the sins of the whole world. We may suffer for the consequences of our actions or inactions, as is happening with climate change at the moment, but this is suffering that is the predictable consequence of our actions or inaction, not divine retribution for particular instances of sin. Another risk is that preaching on politics becomes an abuse of power. I'm happy that I don't have much power, and if I speak rubbish, you're going to tell me very quickly. But I'm still conscious of the fact that I can influence and damage some people by what I say. Another complexity is that no party or uh, politician necessarily embodies Christian ethics or practices. In America, so much politics seems to turn on whether you are pro or anti-abortion. Sadly, many preachers avoid talking about other issues that affect people very much, uh, health policies and economic policies, refugees, taxation, and a whole range of difficult issues. But they're happy to zero in on abortion or, or sex or gender issues. When people speak about the Bible and politics, they tend to choose the passages that support their view. They quote, quote passages in Romans and 1 Peter that say Christians should submit to the authorities, pay taxes, and lead a quiet, quiet life. We like the status quo. But often these are the same people who are engaged in heated debates about women in ministry, gender and abortion, and speak against big government, which is all politics. One thing to avoid is to speculate on how Jesus may have voted. Um, Some have said that Jesus was a socialist, while for others, uh, particularly in conservative circles, socialist is a swear word. In America, many, many Republicans believe that Jesus must be a Republican. Uh, People on the left or progressive side of politics are often accused of emphasising social justice at the expense of salvation and evangelism and, and religious freedom. But our Gospels suggest Jesus spoke a lot about social justice. On the size of government, I think the Bible is more concerned about what rulers or governments do and how they do it than how much they do and the cost through taxation of doing it. Uh, I see nothing to suggest that a big government that does a lot of good for many people is somehow unchristian. And the small government model with individuals supporting the poor through private charities seems to me to let far too many people through the cracks. In America, one of the richest countries in the world, nearly 10% of the population, or 40 million people, live below the poverty line. In Sweden, the percentage is about 1.6%. Oh, sorry. I'm sounding too much like a socialist. I'd better get back to the Bible. Actually, today I want to look at some passages from the Bible which I truly think are representative of God's plan for us in the world and and try and work out what we can and and should do. In Philippians 3.20 we read, 
but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is true. And some say, so don't worry about this world. But Jesus said, love your neighbour, not leave them to be exploited by those in power. In the book of James we read that we should bridle our tongues. Yet Jesus spoke boldly and publicly about hypocrisy in leadership and the abuse of power. It is Christians in politics speaking up that saw the end of slavery in the West and laws protecting children and the whole human rights movement in the Western world has grown out of Christians speaking up, speaking politically, speaking publicly. Uh, We should listen to what the early church did. Uh, We had that in our second reading uh, from Acts. When the Jews had brought some Christians before them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you to not talk about politics. We strictly charged you to not teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you are, and you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're blaming us for the political act of killing Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, but we must obey God rather than men. And remember, all that stuff about orphans, widows, and foreigners that Jesus emphasised, and Peter and Paul taught, that's all deeply political. We vote for people who make decisions about the poor and vulnerable. And that's what our love looks like in public. If we vote for self-interest, that's what our love looks like in public. That's how we present Jesus to the world. The kingdom of Jesus on earth started with Jesus and the cross. But we don't have to wait for his return to live under him as king now. We've already acknowledged him as king in our creeds and in our songs. We pray, and we pray shortly, for his will to be done on earth, not just in heaven. And his will is political and is often in conflict with the policies and practices of our political parties. Unless we want to withdraw entirely, we can't be Christians and not be political. Almost the entire Bible is written by people living in the shadow of one political empire or another. The first readers uh, of scriptures were slaves and fugitives, fishermen and day labourers. They were the oppressed of Egypt, the exiled in Babylon, the peasants under Greek and Roman occupation at the time of Jesus. Jesus chose to come as one of the most, uh, sorry, Jesus chose to come as one of those underdogs of a political empire, a vulnerable child with nowhere to go. His parents were shuffled about by Roman demands for a census and then fleeing as refugees to Egypt. 
Remember that Jesus was born during the taking of a census. That is why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. And there were really only two goals of taking a census back then at least. The first reason is to determine the number of people who can pay taxes. And the second is to figure out the number of men who can go into the army. Tax and war. Money and power. Politics. In other words, the birth of Jesus took place in the shadow of the twin pillars of a typical political empire, then and now. Economic power and military might. Isn't it interesting then that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, when he's asked uh, what it means to repent, he directly addresses representatives of those two pillars of the empire by calling on the tax collectors representing economic power and the soldiers representing military might to act with justice. It was a, it was a political uh, mission that he was on as well as one of repentance. And he both made political comments and, and, and stuck it to the powers. And then Jesus preached a radical alternative to the type of empire we see in the Roman Empire, something he called the kingdom of God. Jesus preached a subversive, upside-down kingdom against self-interest. Conventional politics, whether it be the Roman Empire or a modern political party, comes on a white military horse wielding weapons or policies of shock and awe. The upside-down kingdom comes on a donkey and says, love your enemy even if he crucifies you. That's a deeply political stance. Whereas conventional politics consolidates power and says, let's make our nation great, the upside-down kingdom kneels with a towel and washes feet saying, I've come to serve, even those from other tribes. And that's a deeply political stance. Whereas conventional politics honours the influential and celebrates celebrity, the upside-down kingdom welcomes little refugee children and gives food to the hungry. That's deeply political. You think of Jesus' miracles. They're political. Whereas conventional politics is about power and status and tax breaks for the rich, the upside-down kingdom is led by a handful of unemployed fishermen, rejected bureaucrats, outcast women, and some failed revolutionaries. And, and that's pretty political too. Whereas conventional politics is a rat race to the top, the upside-down kingdom says that the last should be first. Losers are winners, and the most important among us will wash feet. And yes, that's deeply political too. Such a radical alternative to conventional politics could only lead to one outcome, the leader being silenced and murdered by the state. And that's exactly what happened. The fake divide between our personal morality and political morality 
is a lie. We vote for the kind of society Jesus wants, or we don't. My main point actually is that the Bible is very political. But as a takeaway, I really want you to think about this. We vote for the kind of society Jesus wants, or we don't. The Bible shows that God is deeply concerned about how a nation treats its poor, which is a political issue. The problem in Australia is that many Christians live lives that are comfortable enough to be untouched by politics. They don't talk to people living down in social housing who are concerned that their whole community is going to be destroyed. They're not affected by refugee quotas or welfare systems or the cost of rent. They can pay to see a doctor. They can do what they want, go where they want and educate their kids wherever they want. They can wash their hands of politics. They can insulate themselves from the needs of the world and make their faith a private individual affair, which is what our secular world wants us to do. For those of us who are financially secure, my aim is not to induce guilt or to turn you away, but only to say we can do better. We can put our money where our hearts is by supporting GAP or Scar Tree or other uh, worthy causes that would fit with Jesus' priorities. Uh, some of uh, the ideas that I've quoted and some of the, um, the words that I've used are taken from the writings of a guy called Craig Greenfield who says, our faith is always personal but never private. So, so what's to be done? Uh, we should not withdraw from the world, as some would have us do. Jesus didn't, and neither should we. He spoke words of truth to the rich and powerful and words of hope to the vulnerable, and so should we. We should not just speak from the margins, because it's too easy to be ignored there, uh, or, or think that we're doing something useful when all we're doing is speaking to like-minded people. Uh, I want Christians in politics, but preferably if they know and live the gospel and the values of Jesus. When I vote, I'm going to vote for someone in a party who cares for people the world Jesus cares for or gets closer to that than anyone else. I know that's really, really hard. I'm not going to go into what's happening in the state election, but you go... Good on anti-gambling, but what about social, what about this? What, I know it's really hard, but that's the debate that we're invited into and we have to take uh, note of. I'm going to continue reading things by people I don't agree with because I do not want to be a bigot living in a progressive bubble. And I hope the church can be a place where conservatives as well as progressives feel heard and valued. I'm going to keep exploring my capacity to be selfish and withdraw into the comfort of a safe life. Perhaps it's time to retire. 
I'm going to listen to the voice inside me that says, you can do more or you can give more. I'm going to support all of you who get involved with political debates where you're motivated by your love of Jesus. And particularly T and the Scar Tree Ministries in the fight for the voice. Jesus wanted the vulnerable to be heard. I'm going to keep rocking the boat on indigenous rights, equality between the genders, and the need for more and better social housing and climate change. And I can't stay across every debate uh, or fight every fight, but Tom and Trish, delighted that you are with us again today. They're still writing letters into their 90s. Tom just wrote a letter to the Federal Attorney General and got an answer. And good things might come of it. They're still stirring the possum and fighting the good fight, and that's what we're to do. And as we study the Word of God together, I'm going to make sure that we explore the political implications of what we see, including what the political parties say and do. So, what are you going to do? First, I hope you sock it to anyone who says Christians shouldn't talk about politics. I think I've said enough today to show you it is politics. That's the gospel. Second, I want you to think about what love looks like each time you hear a politician speak or you vote. You hear a policy, you hear a sound grab or something like that, and you go, does this sound like love? Test it against what Jesus said and did. And third, I want you to keep praying for Jesus to bring his kingdom to earth. Because that's actually where our hope lies. We can't rely on that to not do anything now, but that is our true king, and that is what we're looking forward to. And we can now stand and sing about that.